Welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back to pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Grammy Award winner Billy Vera, who has done it all in the music industry. His career spans over 50 years. It just didn't start with At This Moment, which is the most unlikely song to hit number one, largely in part to family ties. We talk about that, and Billy still performs with the Beaters. He's also done quite a bit of acting with roles in the cult classic movie The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, TV's Wise Guy. He had a recurring role on Beverly Hills 90210 as Duke the Bookie. And his Boy Meets World episode was just on Nick and Ninth this week. He's also performed theme songs for two TV hits. You'll have to listen to the show to find out which ones. And his autobiography, Harlem to Hollywood, was released last year to rave reviews. I listened to the audiobook, which Billy narrates, it's a fascinating listen about a fascinating man. Here's my conversation with Billy. And helping me relive my youth today is Billy Vera. Billy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. So I just finished um, listening to your autobiography from Harlem to Hollywood, and I absolutely loved it. I know the uh, the commercial right now, the most interesting man, the Dos Equis commercial. You could be one of the most interesting men in uh, music or entertainment. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I guess to start from the beginning, uh, both of your parents were involved in the business, correct? Yeah, my dad was a radio and television announcer, uh, a staff announcer on NBC for 30 years, and my mom was a singer. Uh, who wound up being a background singer on uh, the Perry Como show and others. Yeah, so uh, was that kind of like uh, instilled in you that you were going to be involved in the, the industry or is it something that you really wanted to do at an early age? Well, I, I think like most parents who are in show business and know how tough it can be, uh, they, they had hopes that I'd go into something, you know, more secure. But, uh, you know, once I... Saw Chuck Berry on American Bandstand. I knew what what I wanted to do. Yeah, speaking of American Bandstand, I mean, flash forward, you know, a few years. Did you, in your wildest dreams, imagine that you'd be performing on that show? Well, I, I had two dreams. One of which was to be to appear at the Apollo Theater and, in Harlem, and uh, the other dream was to be uh, appear on American Bandstand. And it, I, I, met, I made it to the Apollo at age 23, and it took me to age 42 to <laughs> make it to Bandstand. Right, and uh, Dick Clark was the host of, uh, when you were watching when you were younger as well, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the uh, the ageless wonder there. <laughs> he, and was... he was really good to me, you know, he, he produced a lot of shows, uh, and uh, I think he had me on every show that, that he produced other than the quiz show. Right. That's great. So, uh, your first, like, and you, before you really broke out as like a performer, you were a pretty prolific songwriter. Uh, you, your first big hit was for Ricky Nelson, correct? Yeah, that was, and, and strangely enough, that was the. 
the first song I ever took to a publisher. You know, so I, I had beginner's luck from day one. Of course, that gives you uh, uh, the notion that it's going to be that easy always, and it's not. Right, and and in the book, it was it was a good story about how. You know, it was brought to Ricky Nelson, and you, they mentioned it to you, and he's like, but he's a white singer. <laughs> yeah, because I had written a song with uh, this new girl singer in mind named Dionne Warwick. Oh, I've heard of her. <laughs> I, I had heard her on the radio, and I said, boy, I, I got to write something for her. Of course, I didn't realize at the time that Bert Backrack and Hal David wrote all her songs. Right. But, uh, so, I, yeah, I, I was shocked when a, a song that I wrote for a black girl ended up being sung by a white boy. Right. But, you know, Ricky did a great job of it, and it, and it made the charts, and, you know, uh, it became part of Nelson history. I walk in a crowd Hiding tears I can't cry out loud I can't let them see me cry Cause they don't care if I live or die And it's a mean old world let me tell you it's a me old world when you need someone I sit in my room It's a room filled with gloom I sit and wait by the telephone But no one cares if I'm all alone it's a mean old world Let me tell you It's a mean old world When you need Someone Sometimes My friends don't understand me Sometimes They can be so cruel All I hope Is someday I find Someone to love my walk down the street hide my face from the people I meet they don't see the tears in my eyes they don't care or even realize that it's a me old world let me tell you it's a me old world when you need someone it's a mean old world you need someone oh, It's a mean old world Baby, I need someone oh, It's a mean old world oh, I need someone So, like, you're, I mean, kind of, you know, known within, like, the black community with black music. How, how did that, like, first start?
Right. And then, you know, the great performers to uh, admire. And you were fortunate enough to work with some of them as well. Okay, yeah. Woods. Okay, yeah, I'm in Connecticut. <laughs> okay, so, you yeah. know, we're on, it was in Banksville. Okay. Right, by Greenwich. And uh, it, uh, it, it was the best known club around, and every weekend we would have one hit record act on Friday and another hit record, current hit record act on Saturday. And we backed them up. You know, they, they most of them didn't bring their own bands, so I guess they couldn't afford it. They'd bring a Watching the good ones and the not so good ones, you know what worked and what didn't work, and it was like an education in, you know, in performing and also in reading music and playing for other people. So that was it. And then later, I, I would go to the Apollo Theater as a customer. I was there the night that James Brown recorded his famous live album. Wow. Yeah, it was the greatest show I ever saw before or since. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, and then you mentioned in the book uh, a great story about Richard Pryor, about <laughs> about how he um, kind of played the crowd about uh, one of his first stand-up oh, yeah. comedies. Yeah, I went down there with a friend of mine, a uh, drummer, uh, when he had an album out, if you'll excuse the expression, it was called That Nigger's Crazy. And and so it was a huge, huge hit, the, the album. And so we wanted to see Richard and even in the afternoon the place was packed and and so they uh, they announced him and he didn't come out and then they, the guy said oh, ladies and gentlemen will you please welcome Richard Pryor and he still didn't come out well you know jokes come in threes so the third time you know they announced him and, and all of a sudden he, he snuck his face out from behind the curtain and Richard had this wonderful rubber face that he could do a lot of things with. And he goes, hi, y'all. I, I hope, I hope, I hope y'all like me. I hope I'm good. Because I heard you, Apollo niggas, is crazy. And the place went berserk. They just, you know, he had him in the palm of his hand from that moment onward. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, he, he, he was such a brilliant performer. Right. And, and get a cheap laugh. But, you know, he, he also has much to teach us uh, through his comedy, you know, without us, without preaching. In other words, teach, don't preach. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was great at that. Yeah. So your, your first uh, time performing at the Apollo, what was the, the crowd's response? Well, we had a, Judy Clay and I had made a record called Storybook Children uh, for Atlantic Records. And unlike most records which break in the smaller cities around the country, Storybook Children became a hit in New York first. And before there were any pictures of us, you know, Judy was black. She was actually a, a, an adopted cousin of Dionne Warwick. And she had sung in the same gospel group, the Drink Art Singers. And uh, so we got, we got hired to play the Apollo with our, on the strength of our hit record. 
You've got your world And I've got mine And it's a shame Two grown-up worlds That will never Be the same Why can't we be Like storybook children Running Across the meadow Why can't we be Like storybook children In a wonderland Where nothing's planned For tomorrow You've got his ring You've got his heart You've got his baby And Billy, it's too late To turn away And start all over again Oh no, don't tell me it's too late, baby Why? Across the meadow Hold my hand one more time Why can't we be Like storybook children In a wonderland In a wonderland Where nothing's planned For tomorrow How happy we would be If only we Were storybook children And so we get there Thursday night After the last show of the previous week For rehearsal And Honey Coles Who was the stage manager there uh, He took one look at me And he said, well, he said, uh, Harlem hasn't seen you yet. He said, so uh, what I want you to do is, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left, and wait for her to take three steps onto the stage, and then you make your entrance and watch what happens. So, you know, and he, and he put us on second, which is not a very good spot in a show. Um, they reserved that spot for uh, new acts and unproven acts and stuff like that so you know the opening act is always a, a, a lively act with great choreography to get the crowd excited so they went on first and then then was our turn and so I waited one two three for Judy steps on stage and then I I come on 
and I heard 1,500 people gasp. And I heard people saying, that's him? <laughs> that's him? You know, and, you know, because uh, they didn't know. Uh, this was only about a month after Martin Luther King had been killed. Right. So they really didn't know how well I would go over. And, but as it turned out, they loved us. And we got such a, uh, an ovation that that uh, Honey Coles came up to our dressing room afterwards. And, uh, can, can I curse on here? Oh, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. He came up to our dressing room after the first show, and he said, uh, he said, I'm changing up the show, man. I'm, I'm going to put you, you on right before the star. Uh, he says, because ain't nobody going to follow you two motherfuckers. <laughs> and so that became our spot forever, every time we played there. In those days, you know, the, the Apollo was five shows a day, seven days a week. And uh, it, was, it was a workhouse, as they called them back then. Wow. So, ha- so you worked all seven days? Or how many days did you work a week? Seven, yes. Wow. Seven Oh, no, of course. But it was you, you only did, you know, three songs. Right. That was your portion of the show. There's maybe seven, eight acts on the show, nine acts. And each one did three songs except the star who may do 20, 25 minutes. You know, so it, it wasn't as, it was a lot of waiting around in the dressing room. Yeah, I bet. How, how long were the shows? Because th- those crowds, they they know everything. <laughs> I remember when I was younger, I used to watch Showtime of the Apollo every Saturday night after Saturday Night Live. And, you know, I was never fortunate enough to see a live show there. I mean, I still can go. But watching that show was just amazing, seeing the performances and just seeing, you know, the crowd just go nuts when the performer just absolutely bombed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so then, uh, probably late 60s, you had your first solo hit with a pen in hand. Well, yeah, shortly after that, actually, 
which was 1968, uh, I get a phone call backstage from Jerry Wexler, who was the big boss at Atlantic Records. And he said, uh, you know, because of some contractual problems, Judy could no longer record on Atlantic. She was, she was contracted to Stax Records. So he said, he said I, you guys can't record together anymore. He said, but don't worry. He said, I found a song for you for your first solo record. And it was on a Bobby Goldsboro album. Uh, Bobby had just had a hit called Honey, which is a gigantic hit record. And on the album was this song called With Pen in Hand. And Jerry had done his research and found that it wasn't going to be the next single for Bobby Goldsboro. So he said, uh, I'm going to send a song to you if you like it. He said, be ready to record. He said, when do you finish the Apollo? I said, well, Friday night. He said, okay, I'm going to reserve time at the studio at 9 a.m. on Friday morning. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you sound you know right blue eyed soul and like you know right, the black sound, so I can see why he would take a liking to you. And the funny thing is, if it wasn't something that I attempted to do, it just for some, maybe just because I was around that music as a kid so much that it just sort of came naturally to me. Yeah. So what what was your, like your initial response when you heard like Robert Plant and uh, Led Zeppelin cover "Don't Look Back"? Yeah, I've heard of him, yeah. Cindy Lauper's 
And then, and then maybe a few months later, I get a promo CD for Robert Plant's next album. And Don't Look Back was on there. And I said, oh, man, now, now the, finally the song is going right. to do, right? Well, it, it never made it to the album. It didn't make the final cut. So now I'm starting to think that the song is jinxed. <laughs> Speaking of you know songwriting and writing for other artists, uh, Dolly Parton, you know writing, uh, I really got a feeling. How um, how did that come about working with her? Uh-huh. 
pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. She says, why don't you start something and we'll finish it when I get back. So I'm thinking, well, what the hell do you write for Nancy Sinatra? Yeah. You know, uh, ah, oh, she got this famous father. Yeah, I, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say. You know, lines like that. Right. And I, so I had the song finished by the time he got home. And I played it for him, and he loved it, man. He just said, oh, my God, this is the number one song if I ever heard one. So he, next day or two, he goes down to, goes over to New York and plays it for Nancy. And she didn't like it. And, uh, in fact, I think she hated it, you know. <laughs> so he was pissed, you know. He said, uh, man, she's crazy. He said, this, this is a hit. you gotta, you got to prove me right. you got to make something happen with this song. So that got me kind of excited, you know, and so I, I, I got my friend Crazy Joe, and who had a little country band up in Connecticut, and uh, he had a girl singer in the band, and I should have known she was, she she would read this, the lyrics to the songs she sang off of index cards. Oh boy. And that should have told me that she was lazy. Right. Well, she she didn't really learn the song that well, and. You know, we went in and recorded it with her, and, and everywhere I took it, you know, they said, love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate the girl. So I, I'm down to the last guy on my list, named Charlie Koppelman, and I played it for him, and he says, love the song, hate the girl. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, now I'm going to get really dejected. He says, but, he says, we're recording Dolly next week. He said, let me have the song for her. So, you know, I didn't trust him. He said, I'll promise you it'll be the single. I said, put it in writing, Charlie, and give me some money. So I figured he'd give me a couple of hundred dollars, you know, which would have been fine at that time. So he has his secretary write a check, and he said, I didn't even look at it. And I was going down in the elevator with my little girlfriend at the time, and she grabs the envelope out of my hand because she got, she was curious. Baby, he, he gave you $2,500, right. which was a fortune in 1978, you know. So, you know, I, I, I realized he was serious. And uh, sure enough, the record came out, it became a single. And, uh, and uh, in, in the interim, I get an offer to come to California uh, and write songs for Warner Brothers. And... Um, so I figured, well, why not? I mean, I've, I've sort of hit a dead end here in New York. Right. And, uh, you know, California might give me some new fresh blood. And uh, so I, I packed up everything I owned and put it in my car. <laughs> Left my mother's house. And, and, and all the way across America, across Route 10, every 20 minutes they're playing my song by Dolly Parton. And I said, wow, man. I, I'm back in showbiz, you know. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't had a hit record in nine years. So this is a big deal to me. And by the time I reached L.A., it, it was number one on the country charts. And that was my first number one record. Daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might. 
back a little bit uh, when you first heard like one of your songs on the radio what was like where were you and how did it feel oh man it felt great it was the first time i heard a record of mine on the radio was uh, it was it was not one i wrote but uh i had written the other side but uh, we had written it we had done a song called my heart cries and it just was like you know i was with some of my friends and we turned the radio up and opened all the windows you know just like stupid kids were. And it was a great feeling. And then the first time I heard one that I wrote was Mean Old World, and I saw Ricky do it on television. He did it five weeks in a row on the Ozzy and Harriet show. So that was really cool. You know, you, know, you felt like you were, now you're part of the club. You know? Right. Yeah, so, so now you're in California. You have a, you know, you wrote a number one song. How did... Um, the beaters come about well you know i i didn't really know anybody i i i stayed at the home uh, i rented a room from a uh, an old girlfriend of mine and i and i so i was living there and then i'd go into warner brothers you know every day and try to write songs and i i i ran into a guy that used to play bass for me in uh, back in new york he had moved out there a couple of years earlier. And uh, so we started hanging out. And, uh, you know, one day he says, he says, what are you doing on the weekends? I said, oh, I don't really know. I, you know, I don't know anybody. And he said, why don't you come out to the beach? He said, uh, he said, we play at this little, I, I play with some guys 
we chose this company, Alpha Records, which was a Japanese label that had opened up with a lot of Japanese money, you know, a, a U.S. operation. And I figured, you know, rather than go and get lost on a big company, we'd be the first act on Alpha, and we'd get the big push from them, which was exactly what happened. And we wound up in uh, early 1981 with... Uh, uh, you know, pretty medium-sized hit record called I Can Take Care of Myself. Your wardrobe's purchased at the latest boutique Your place is furnished like the president's suite your freezer's filled up with the finest of meat Somehow you manage on a hundred a week They say you like to feel white gold on your neck They say when you make love you like to direct And that new sports car you proceeded to wreck They say I ought to ask who picked up the check I can take care of my I never met someone so hard to impress Until one day by chance you saw my address The next day you had on your lowest cut dress But I can take care of myself My friends all say I ought to think twice is kind of funny with the name of the group being the Beaters. <laughs> you know, and that never, ever occurred to me until some record reviewer wrote that in, in the trade paper. Right. It just, you know, it 
Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty fun, and that and that's also when you first recorded at this moment, right? Yeah, same album. We recorded live at the Roxy, which was another famous club. Because my manager and the record company said, uh, you know, we've made some demos, and they were kind of they weren't great. They were good, but not great. He said, no. He said you got to record live to capture that. You know that that what what you guys have is you know is when you're alive. And so he was ended up being right. And then the follow-up record was at this moment. And at that time, the, the head of promotion at Alpha got into a, uh, a little bit of an argument with the, the president of the company and quit. So there was really nobody to promote this record. And uh, so it only went to like number 79 on the charts. Shortly after that, they had signed a bunch of other acts that flopped. And so the Japanese pulled the plug, and uh, and they closed down the American operation, and then we were without a record deal from that point forward. And by now, I'm 35 years old or whatever, and, and you know, who's going who's gonna to sign a 35-year-old rock and roll singer? You know, rock and roll in those days especially was a young man's game. Right. So then, uh, I'm assuming that's probably when your acting career started. How did uh, that come about? Well, I, I had no intention of being an actor, but Chip Taylor's brother, who was John Voight, had come into the Troubadour one night and with his acting coach, David Proval, who later of The Sopranos and from Mean Streets. Um, they came in, and John came up, came backstage, and he says, man, he says, you know, I've never seen a singer do what you do. He said, he said you, you, you do what all the great actors do. And John is a great, great actor. Yes, he is, yeah. And uh, I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, man, he said, you know, he said, most actors get up there and they decide what they're going to make the audience feel. I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to make you cry. I'm going to make you horny, all that. He said, you don't do that. He said, you just lay it out there, man, and, and let them react organically, you know, the, the way they would naturally react. He said, he said if, if, if you could be taught to do that without a guitar in your hand and without a song and without a microphone, he said, you could be one of the great actors. I said, oh, come on, John, I don't want to be an actor. He said, you know, I'm not good looking enough. He said, bullshit. He said, you need to come to David's class. So, you know, he, he could be pretty persuasive. And so I, I went, to, you know, just to shut him up, basically. And, and, and I, I watched the first guys I saw up there working out on stage with this one actor that became Stephen Bauer. His real name was Rocky Estreberia. Okay. He was from Cuba. Right. And this other guy named Chris Mulkey. And I, oh, yeah.
I'm singing a, a funny song. My job is not just to be funny or to make them laugh, but what if, I, I, I mean, yes, I have an obligation to the words of the song and, and the meaning of the song, but what if my best friend died that day? Well, don't I also have an obligation to feel that pain? And somehow the combination of those two could make something bigger than just trying to be funny or just trying to feel my pain. And, and that's kind of the, the layman's version of what that class taught me or showed me how to do rather than taught me. And so, but it took a while because, you know, it was new to me. And after a while I started getting asked to be in plays and, uh, you know, and then Somebody asked me to do a sitcom. I think it was Alice might have been the first one. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and one thing led to another. And then one, a couple of years later, we were playing at a club up on the Sunset Strip. And these guys came in and uh, introduced themselves and said they're making a movie. And uh, he liked the way I had lived on stage. And... Uh, did I think I could do that in front of the camera? I said, well, I, you know, I, I've done a couple of things in front of the camera. Uh, so he had me come in and audition, and that's how I got Buckaroo Banzai. Right, which is, I mean, it's, it's a cult classic. I mean, it, the cast, it's a great cast. I mean, Oh, my God, everybody in the, in, the, in the cast went on to be somebody. Right, I mean, even like a cameo, like, Jonathan Bangs, who you worked with on, on Wise Guy as well, you know, is awesome in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Christopher Lloyd. Exactly. Who has my favorite line in the movie. It's not my planet, monkey boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even like, you know, Carl Lumby. I mean, all, all, all these guys are in there. Are yeah, just, Lithgow. Yeah, like Lewis Smith. I mean, you know, it's just, it's it's yeah. really... So did, um I know Peter Weller obviously was the star of the movie, but did... Yeah. All of them play their own instruments, or was that kind no, of no? No, no, <laughs> it was all. Uh, it was all. We we taught my my guitar player and I taught Peter how to look like he was playing. <laughs> right. And uh, and then one of the fellas from the Beaters, uh, Jerry Peterson, was played the double saxes. Okay. Which which he does in real life. Right. But they 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 thought he looked pretty weird, and you know they 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 wanted a weird look in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> So did you like honestly think your first movie would be working with aliens? I you know I <laughs> thought it was going to be a big movie because what they did was and the studio thought it was going to be a big movie. In fact, they signed us up for five sequels. Well, yeah, because even at the end of the movie, they say you know coming up you know the next movie is you know yeah, yeah. and unfortunately. Well,
lot of the jokes went by so fast that people didn't have time to get them. Right. Now, a year later, when it came out on video, and it went to number one on video for six months, and so people could stop the film. And go back. And they could say, what did he say? Right. And they would go back, and then they would get the jokes. And that's when it really became a cult classic on video. Yeah, and I'm like really surprised that you know they haven't tried rebooting it. I heard like Kevin Smith might be developing a TV series. I, I that was a while ago. I'm not sure, but something we like we were contacted last year. Okay, about doing you know cameo parts in there. Right. Not as our original cast, okay. just for yeah. the fans. Right. You know? Yeah, uh, I haven't heard any more since last year. Right, Ho- hopefully, because I mean that was it was I'm sure that was a fun movie to shoot. Oh my god, I I, I never had so much fun since. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and one of the reasons for me was that Rick Richter, the director, you know, he liked, as I said, he liked my ability to ad lib, and so sometimes he would just say, "Look," he said, "What would you do in this scene?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, all the, I mean, looking now, all the, you know, the stars, and then, I mean, back then, I, I don't think anyone really hit it yet. Everyone was on the verge of stardom. Everybody was on the verge. Goldblum, Ellen yeah. Mark, and, you know, nobody had really, I mean, Peter was the biggest name in there, and, and they all went on to be bigger than Peter. You know, Liv Gow, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Christopher Lloyd, all of them. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Jonathan Banks now, yeah. Yeah, now speaking of Jonathan Banks, uh, one of my all-time favorite shows, and it's extremely underrated, is Wise Guy, and you had a really memorable episode, of course, playing, you know, a singer, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jo- Johnny Romanowski. <laughs> right, Jonathan kills me in that show. That yeah, he did, yeah, unfortunately. Reluctantly. he didn't want to. No, no, but uh, just talk about that whole experience. Thank you. 
Yeah, he, he was he was phenomenal in that role. You know, Sonny oh, Steele, great. Yeah, he was he was great. And just that whole show in general. I mean, after you know, after his you know arc went, I mean, in the news now, you know, you could talk about Kevin Spacey at all. But I mean, a phenomenal actor, and he was unbelievable on the, on that show after after uh, your arc. Oh, uh, Dan Loria, yeah, who, Wonder who Years. Of mine. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because the weekend before he came to see the band. Okay. And you know, we were talking. And I, said, I said, "What you got going on, man?" He said, oh, "I got to go up to Vancouver to shoot this, this television show." So I play a real bad guy, you know. And I said, "Oh, cool." I said, "Wait a minute, I'm going to Vancouver. What, what show are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out we were both doing Wise Guy. Right. Yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah, so then uh, at this moment, kind of resurfaces like the most unlikely of sources, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was just eking out a living as a, a bare living as an actor. You know, between that and my old song royalties, you know, I wasn't getting rich by a long shot. And then one day, I get a phone call. This guy says, "Hi, my name's Michael Whitehorn." Right, yeah, I love that show, yeah. Yeah, after after Cosby. Well, they had a good lead in, you know, with Cosby. Of course, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, he said we were at the club the other night, and we heard you sing a song that we thought would be really great for uh, an episode that we're uh, doing. And I said, which song was it? He couldn't remember the name of it. Nobody ever remembers the name of that. Right. <laughs> they always get it wrong. Yeah.
quick lunch that I had with this guy Richard Foos, who owned Rhino Records. And I told him what had happened. And I said, you know, Richard, how many do you need to sell to break even? He said, ah, a couple of thousand. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll guarantee you 2,000 sales. And I, I, if, if need be, I, I could sell them in the clubs. And so, you know, he did it mainly just because he likes me. Right.
and you know I'd never hurt you Kiss the ground that you walk on If I could just hold you again If I could just hold you If I If I could just hold you Then did you and the Beaters like go on tour a lot or open for anybody or small venues? We couldn't tour much because the size of the band. Right, okay. You see, when you have a hit record, even a number one record, what happens is that you're asked to open up to be an opening act for a big star. But the kind of money that they offer you is okay if you're a four-piece band of 22-year-old kids. Right, <laughs> that 
Exactly. Ready. And so the album 
was good and it was well done and it was professionally done, but it, it, it lacked a certain warmth and, and that I learned later when we were making the Lou Rawls records that, that, we, that I produced, co-produced. Right. And, and so, but, but Capital, to their credit, did put out uh, a slow ballad for the first record, uh, Between Like and Love. And it went to number nine on the adult contemporary charts, but the album didn't sell anything. And so that was kind of, they, they didn't renew my contract right. yeah. after that. They put out one more single, but that nothing happened with that either. Yeah, so it's kind of like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, listen, they're in business, I understand that, and I, you know, I had no resentment about it. So then around a year later, my friend uh, from back in Connecticut, from Stanford, Michael Guscona, he, he, he had become over the years one of the top jazz producers in the country for Blue Note Records, which was a subsidiary of Capital, ironically. And uh, he calls me up one day and says, you know, we just signed uh, Lou Rawls. He said, and, uh, you know, Bruce asked me to, to produce it. He said, uh, he, Lou's been making these crummy, you know, like Vegas disco records. <laughs> right. That, that haven't been selling shit. He said, but Bruce Lundervall was the head of Bruno. He said, Bruce said, uh, you know, take him back to his roots. You know, the blues and the jazz that, that first made him famous, the things that people first loved him for. And, uh, and get some songs, you know. Why don't you see if your friend Billy has some songs? So I sent Michael some songs, and he said, you know what? He said, let's produce it together. He said, it'd be more fun if you and I could hang out. You know, you could come back to Stanford and stay at my house, and, you know, we'll, we'll make the record. I said, great. So we got all these incredible musicians. Everybody wanted to help Lou make his comeback. He had Richard T on piano and Cornell Dupree on guitar. We had uh, uh, we got George Benson to right. play on one, one of my songs. We had a duet with Ray Charles, a duet with uh, Diane Reeves, the great jazz singer on Blue Note. And, you know, Hank Crawford and Benny Golson, all these great jazz players who play on this record. And I, I for the first time, I, I began to see the value of having great musicians on your record. And that, that album went to number one on the jazz charts. Yeah. You know, at last. And so we made two more for Blue Note with Lou. And they, they all went made the top five in the jazz charts. And, and kind of, we brought his career back. Yeah, and kind of took you in a different direction, huh? Yeah, but in a sense, we took him back. I mean, I had him do two, on the first time, I had him do two songs by Lyle Lovett, of all people. Right, yeah. And it worked. It really worked, you know. The main, my main reason was because of my friend was, was Lyle's publisher. So and he, he played me some really good songs that we thought would be good for Lyle. And then we, we did three of my songs and some great old R&B standards. And Lou, Lou trusted our judgment 
And this was after you uh, worked with Rick Dees, correct? After I worked with who? Rick Dees on, on, on his show? Rick Dees, no, this was a, uh, simultaneous. Oh, okay. The, the first Lou album was 89. Gotcha. And then we did, uh, we did the Rick Dees late night show uh, through the whole year of 1990. So I had a, I had a on, a, on hiatus, uh, I, I had to go back to New York to do the second Lou Rawls album. Okay. And uh, and then and then the show got canceled. Uh, and then after that, I did the, we did the third uh, Lou Rawls album on Blue Note. Right. What was working on that show like? It was not a lot of fun. <laughs> TV, yeah. It's it's hard because you see all in the, in the years past all all these celebrities athletes have these shows and just don't work. I mean, you look at Johnny yeah. Carson. Johnny Carson knew how to do it. There was nobody I don't think that ever will be as good as Johnny Carson was, and his secret was simple. He knew he was on five nights a week. He knew that people will get tired of anybody five nights a week. <laughs> right. show what nine times I believe Tony Bennett. <laughs> yeah, that ain't bad, huh? 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I had uh, Teresa Ganzel on a couple months ago, and, you know, she was oh, one of the, wow. yeah, the Carson players, and, you know, she was just telling me some stories about doing those skits with him, and just, he would, you know, lose it on camera, and it was, you know, he, he was generally having fun doing that show. That's right. Yeah, which, which, which yeah, a- absolutely. The relationship between him and Ed. Oh, yeah. Great. As it turned out, my, my music agent, Danny Robinson, his father was Bud Robinson, Doc. Okay. So, you know, they were family there. So, yeah. it's another thing. Plus, both Johnny and Ed knew my dad from, in, from in, NBC when they were in New, when the show was done from New York. Right. Right. So, I don't want to keep you too long. I still have a, a few more questions. Uh, one of the shows I watched, you know, because it kind of appealed to my generation, was uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, and I remember you were, you know, Duke the Bookie for, I think, Nat and uh, Brandon. Uh, what was that like? <laughs> Is that just another, just uh, an agent calling you and saying, hey, I got a role for you? Yeah, basically, yeah. you know, uh, I knew I knew uh, one of the producers, uh, but I don't, he didn't have anything to do with me getting the gig. Uh, I bet, yeah. (laughs) But uh, he said, so I I was working with the nice kids. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was was what they call a recurring role. Yeah. You know, I I recently did a a podcast with these girls, these two girls, that their whole podcast is about 902. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Every week. So it was like, you know, oh, we got Billy Barrett here, we got Duke. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, And that show is on, you know, all the time can you like with that role or any of your movies can you watch yourself when you're on camera like if you're at home watching you know tv and one of your stuff roles comes on I, I really don't bother you know watching them you know how many times can you look at yourself at right <laughs> i mean some people might but i don't yeah really. right so, i'll tell you the biggest money maker of all of those was one i didn't appear on camera uh, uh i sang the theme song Emptiness? Oh, that too, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that ran nine years, and and then it's still on to this day, and it's syndication. And, the, you know, they have to pay you for that. Right, of course, yeah. It was like, it was like having a hit record, man. All over again, yeah. <laughs> financially. In fact, the show was very popular in Germany and Austria. Right. And for, so people would write to my website, Ben, are you coming out to the King of Queens theme with with record? <laughs> I said, well, it's only 32 seconds long. You know, it's not going to make a very much of a record. <laughs> no, you'd be bigger than Hasselhoff if you come over here. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And, you, and you, you mentioned David Hasselhoff. In, in your book, you had a really like good, interesting story about meeting him for the first time. Yeah. There, I was at the, the Forum, which is like Madison Square Garden yeah. out here, you know. And uh, I, I forget who I, I went to see. Somebody brought me, actually. And I, I got up for a bathroom break. And, you know, I'm kind of shy, so I always go in the stall. And I hear somebody singing my song, Room with a View. And, uh, and I thought it was just some friend of mine who had seen me come in and was goofing off. Right. And uh, I said, so I get my big Barry White voice. I said, who's 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, run, run out of the ocean, right? Yeah, <laughs> Slow motion. No. Yeah. So then um, you mentioned King of Queens, which ironically I'm from originally from Queens. I never watched an episode. I mean, I know the songs, but yeah. uh, Empty Nest, a show I loved, it was a Golden Girls spinoff. You you also wrote the theme song, performed that. I didn't, I didn't write that, but I. Sang oh, okay. It. Okay. Yeah, both of them. I never did write either one of them. Right. But uh, yeah, that was on four years, and I I still get little checks from that too. Right. You know, they, they made us, they made us re-record it about halfway through the four years. They thought they wanted a, a more quote-unquote modern version of it. Okay. Which sucked. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like pandering. You know. Yeah. The original version was kind of almost like Dixieland jazz. Yeah. Yeah, got got to change up something. <laughs> yeah, so then uh, Michael Bublé uh, covered at this moment, and I'm oh, sure yeah. that did you know very nicely for you. I I believe that also funded your big band album. Is that also sure yeah? Is that also your favorite version of the, or cover of the song? Like, like being on Star Search. 
music. Right, yeah. They go over the top. But uh, Buble, you know, he sang it very subtly and uh, sold 10 million records. <laughs> yeah. I'm I, very happy to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's your bank account's favorite cover of the song. <laughs> That's that. Yeah, that's great. That's that's yeah. Right. yeah. That's great. And last question. Um, you finally were able to win a Grammy after all these years. Um, in an unlikely way too. Yeah, you know, I, sometimes I always feel like I'm the forgotten man. You know, I mean, yeah. it took me lot. Friends got gold records when they were 22. I, I got mine when I was 42. Yeah.
<laughs> Holy fuck, baby. You won. You won. You fucking won. You fucking won. Everybody in the audience is laughing. You know? And I get up on stage and I'm out of breath. And I go, oh my God. Holy shit. And everybody starts laughing. Laughing, right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's... Oh man, you know, and, you know, I, I have friends that are very cynical guys. You know, and they, I said to one friend, my friend was Tim Hauser from the Manhattan Transfer. Okay. And I said to him, I said, where do you keep your Grammy? He said, ah, I keep it in my bedroom where it'll do me some good. <laughs> and then another friend of mine, Michael Cuscuna, who had uh, he had Grammys, he, he just puts it away in the closet. And get the shit. Right. But you know, I mean, I'm. I'm a bit of a sentimentalist, you know, and, and, you know, it just meant a lot to me, so I keep it in my living room. Yeah, that's great. It, it should, you know, go on you, you know, when you go out as, as your wingman, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, Billy, thank you for a few minutes today. Uh, everyone listening, please check out his autobiography from Harlem to Hollywood. It's it's, called, it's simply called Harlem, Harlem to Hollywood. Yeah, and it, it's, it's, okay, it's awesome. Uh, Especially the audio version, it's Billy voices everything, and it's it's tremendous. And thanks for a few minutes today, Billy. Well, thanks for having me, Noel. And a special thanks to Billy Vera for joining us today. Wow, that was absolutely amazing. Like I said earlier, go get his autobiography or the audiobook, Harlem to Hollywood. It's fascinating. You can follow Billy on Twitter at Billy Beater. You can follow me on Twitter at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Living My Youth real soon. <laughs>